You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Jesus Christ, the great good shepherd of the sheep, we give you thanks that you have brought us together in this house of prayer and praise as your flock. We thank you that you have authority to lay down your life and to take it up again. Let us now receive your word as the very words of that life until we are joined with you in glory. Bless us as we come to a better understanding of these words. In your name we pray. Amen. Not having grown up in church, I have very few memories of church as a kid. Um, But one of the ones that's distinct was going to worship with my grandfather on Good Shepherd Sunday. I don't know why it's distinct. I don't remember anything about the service except the stained glass window that had a picture of Jesus carrying a lamb in his arms and the light shining through it brightly and the reading of Psalm 23. I think I remember that because it was the only piece of scripture I knew because it hung on the walls of so many places in my childhood. Not only my grandparents' house, but in a doctor's office and things like this. If you get a group of Christians together of different traditions, we rarely have the same hymns in common. Usually only Amazing Grace. And the only things we can do together are pray the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23. Always in the King James. I don't know if you're like me, I was like kind of falling over those words. Somehow, I, I, even though I wasn't raised in church, I still learned the King James Version. So what makes this so precious to us? It's been precious to the people of God for millennia. Why? I think it's in part because this is a psalm in which God does all the heavy lifting. This is a a psalm where there's comfort given at every possible level. I think this is why it's the most requested piece of scripture for funerals and even for weddings. We're asked to look to God and trust in his provision alone. The author of this psalm, David, was a shepherd himself. He knew what it was like to be a shepherd. He knew what it was like to defend the flock against predators and to try to keep these stiff-necked and recalcitrant sheep from hurting themselves. And he wrote this psalm at the end of a life that started as a Shepherd, but grew through the fight with Goliath, the years in exile where he was chased by the king of Israel, and finally to his own ascension to being king of Israel. And it's from that vantage point, likely after 
the incident with Bathsheba, that he writes these words and he says, Because the Lord is my shepherd, what does he write? I shall not want. I shall not want. Not we shall not want. This isn't an ode to the king of Israel as a country. This is a recognition of a God who has reached out and taken a hold of his life personally. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me to green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The path of righteousness is never an easy path, not in any age. But it will glorify the Lord, who is not only my shepherd, but the one who creates the very abundant life, the ultimate abundance, which is my hope when times are tough in this world. And David had plenty of tough times. And as I said to the kids in the children's sermon, his rod and his staff... They comfort me. The rod was a weapon for driving away predators. The staff was a tool for correcting the sheep. Both of them violent in their own way, but it's a violence that heals. And the fact that God says and does things that are unpleasant to me proves A, that He's real and not a figment of my imagination, and B, that He hasn't given up on me even when I've screwed up big time. He anoints my head with oil and my cup runs over. As I tell everybody who goes through pre-baptismal counseling, anointing is just a fancy word for oiling. And you have to remember that we do it in a baptism because the first and second king of Israel were God instructed the prophet Samuel to designate them by pouring oil over their head. When we are baptized into Christ, we are made royalty. We are adopted into God's royal family. And so when David writes these lines, we should think of being elevated from serfdom. Shepherds were the lowest on the social scale up to being king. This is what God does for us. And so surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Follow me, not lead before me. Because God's the one going along behind us and picking up the pieces of what we screw up and blessing the work we do, which is in accord with His will. This psalm, I think, is so beloved because it is pure gospel, it is grace, it is all about what God has done for us and is doing for us. But it's not a call to quietude. It's not a call to passivity. Because this shepherd raised to be king had a lot to do for God. The work of the people of God for God always springs from what God has done for us. Most Lutherans have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 nearly memorized. Right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by gift, by grace. 
But fewer of us know verse 10. It goes on. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you were conceived of in the mind of God, God was already preparing the good works you would do both to glorify Him and to love and serve your neighbor. Your power to serve in love springs from what God has done for you. Good Reformation theology always affirms that while good works are not required for our salvation, the faith that receives the grace of salvation is always accompanied by good works because it's a living faith. It's an active faith. Now when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I'm quite certain he was as familiar with Psalm 23 as we are. Psalm 23 has always been a favorite of the people of God long before Christians were on the scene. And when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, we can be sure that he was deliberately echoing this beloved, most beloved of Psalms, as well as directly comparing himself to the author David. In today's gospel reading, Jesus says to us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. When he says that, it follows closely on the heels of him saying back just a few verses that his sheep know his voice and follow it. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will tell his followers that we abide in him when we keep his commandments. And that this union with him, this abiding in him is what will allow us to bear spiritual fruit that this relationship is a kind of friendship that allows us to know what St. Paul calls the mind of Christ. To know the mind of Christ is peace and salvation. Dr. Rosaria Champagne-Butterfield talks about this with her characteristic clarity in the follow-up to her autobiography. The second book is called Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. To remind you of her background, um, Dr. Butterfield had been the uh, head of the um, LGBTQ caucus at, I think, Rochester University, um, a women's studies professor and, uh, and a lesbian. Um, and she only became familiar with the Christian scriptures as an English professor when she took a year off to try and uh, who, planning to write hit pieces on Christians. Um, this is what made her an unlikely convert. In this follow-up to her, her book, this is what she writes. She said, I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high. They always are. Now, insert whatever it is that you personally struggle with in for homosexuality in Dr. Butterfield's statement, and you will see why so few of us as Christians experience the profoundly rewarding intimacy with God of which both David and Jesus speak 
in today's Gospels, or in today's Scriptures. It takes faith to follow where the voice of the Good Shepherd leads. A faith which precedes our understanding of what it means. An active, living faith is the only one that will do. Because if we are following Christ, we may be sure we will go where He has led the way. That is, to the cross first, before we get to go on to glory. As Dr. Butterfield also notes in the book, obedience constrains. It always mirrors suffering, as every selection implies a sacrifice. This is what it means to pick up our cross and follow Christ. The small, uncounted sacrifices again and again of obedience so we can learn to understand what is the mind of Christ. And it will take great faith, deeply abiding in Christ, for us to believe that God has not fled when it appears that the ravening wolf is barking at our door. It'll take amazing faith, living faith, obedient faith, to receive with gratitude the staff of correction. Even as we wait for the protective or avenging rod to see the rich banquet God has laid before us when it seems like the enemy has shriveled up our supply lines. To love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, the ones who've turned our green pastures into valleys of the shadow of death. But following Christ's command in this area, in this arena, is not optional. It is compulsory. It is the working out of our faith in fear and trembling, and it was, is the only way we will come to understand the mind of God. It is also in our obedience alone that we can discover the intimacy with God that alone has the power to ultimately satisfy us in this sin-soaked world. And no, no one's life demonstrates this more clearly than the life of Maximilian Kolbe. If you've never heard of him, he was a Franciscan priest in Poland in the 1930s. Actually, he traveled all over the world, and he had come back to Poland um, to found a friary. In 1939, when the Nazis invaded Poland, uh, he took 3,000 Polish refugees into his friary. 3,000, 2,000 of which were Jews. You can imagine they immediately came under suspicion of the occupying regime as they fed and cared for these people. In May of 1941, the friary was closed down and Maximilian and four of his companions were taken to the death camp of Auschwitz where they worked with the other prisoners. Hard physical labor meant to break their spirits. Though beaten and left for dead at one point, Maximilian survived and continued to minister to the needs of others, often sharing his starvation-level rations with others or going without entirely so that other people could have one more day to live. Even crawling from bunk to bunk after a day's back-breaking labor on those starvation rations, asking if there's anything he could do to help 
those incarcerated with him. To encourage, again, to break people's spirits and to encourage them turning on one another, the rule at Auschwitz was that if one prisoner escaped, ten people from their block were executed in retaliation. In July of 1941, a man was believed to have escaped from Block 12, where Maximilian was housed. Ironically, this man was later found to have drowned in the Camp Latrine. But still, ten prisoners were selected to be executed, including, and I apologize for those of you who speak Polish because I'm going to butcher these names, including a man named Francis Czech Gajownicek, who had been in prison for helping the Polish resistance. As he was taken, he couldn't help uttering a cry, My poor wife! My poor children! What will they do? At this point, Father Colby stepped forward, took off his prisoner's cap, and said to the commandant, I am a Catholic priest. Let me take his place. I am old. He has a wife and children. I can't imagine what was going through this Nazi's mind at the time. The prisoners who survived to tell this story said that they were afraid he was just going to round 10 up to 11 and put them all in the death camp. But for some reason, for some reason, he allowed the switch. Gajownicek stepped back into line as Father Colby went with the 10 to be executed. Now, they didn't execute them by firing squad or anything. They didn't waste bullets on prisoners. They put them in an isolation block and starved them to death. Bruno Borgowicz, one of the few Poles who were assigned to render service to the starvation bunker, later told this to his parish priest. He said, The ten condemned to death went through terrible days. From the underground cell in which they were shut up, there continually arose the echoes of prayers and canticles. The man in charge of emptying the buckets of urine found them always empty. The thirst drove the prisoners to drink the contents. Since they had grown very weak, prayers were now only whispered, and at every inspection, when almost all the others were now lying on the floor, Father Colby was seen kneeling or standing in the center as he looked cheerfully into the face of the SS men. Father Colby never asked for anything and did not complain. Rather, he encouraged the others, saying that the fugitive might be found and then they would all be freed. One of the SS guards remarked, This priest is really a great man. We have never seen anyone like him. Two weeks passed in this way. Meanwhile, one after another, they died until only Father Colby was left. This, the authorities felt, was too long. The cell was needed for new victims. So one day they brought in the head of the sick quarters, a German named Bach, who gave Father Colby an injection of carbolic acid in the vein of his left arm. Father Colby, with a prayer on his lips, gave, himself, gave his arm to the executioner. Unable to watch this, I left under the pretext of work to be done. Immediately after the SS men had left, I returned to the cell where I found Father Colby, leaning in a sitting position against the back wall, with his eyes open and his head drooping sideways. 
His face was calm and radiant. The heroism of Father Colby resounded through Auschwitz. A survivor, Jerzy Bielecki, declared that Father Colby's death was, quote, a shock filled with hope, bringing new life and strength. It was like a powerful shaft of light in the darkness of the camp. Another survivor, Joseph Stemmler, later recalled, in the midst of a brutalization of thought, feeling, and words such as had never been known, Man indeed became a ravening wolf in his relations with other men. And into this state of affairs came the heroic self-sacrifice of Father Colby. If we would have the charity and inward peace in the far less dire circumstances of our lives that Father Maximilian had in the death camp of Auschwitz, we must cultivate the habit of attending to our Master's voice when things are not so grim. If we would give hope to others the way Father Colby did, we need to learn to receive the correction of God's staff as comforting, the proof that He has not given up on us as David did. If we would be a true hero in a world in much need, in more need of those kind of people than ever, we must know the abundant life that can alone be found in a true relationship with the living God. We must learn to heed the voice of Christ. For He alone is the Good Shepherd who has lain His life down for us, His sheep. And He alone can lead us to pastures too green to wither, from the poison of this world and to waters too still to be disturbed by its fiercest storms. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, it is so, so hard to move beyond the comfort of this psalm to the challenge that because you have secured our future, we can entrust to you our present. When things are difficult, when obedience is difficult, we ask that you teach us the lesson that we can only learn your ways, can only understand your ways when we learn to do your will. Grant us to have that faith and to learn your will to be instructed by your word until finally we understand it from the inside out. Empower our faith, empower our obedience, empower our serving one another in love until we rest in your pastures in that kingdom which is to come and which will never end. This we ask of you, our great good shepherd. Amen. My vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.